Blog Talk Radio. Like give me love, oh. Now you the catch in my shot. Oh. For your sake, I go go touch you. Yeah. We go drive around if for my Porsche. Baby, pana, they say he like you all. I, I get you all. Baby, pana, anywhere that you go, I go follow you the go. Baby, pana, they say he like cassava. I get to pick cassava, hey baby, pana. My love for you, you never die, you never die. Iba uh, iba, oh baby, iba iba. Baby, you too sweet, you forever. My baby, dance it to the lagwaja. Make a take you to Fagwalada. Iba iba, oh baby, iba iba. Baby, you too sweet, you forever. My baby, dance it to the lagwaja. Make a take you to Fagwalada. My love is a beautiful thing. Good morning, good morning, and uh, welcome to Zambia Blog Talk Radio. We do thank you for joining us today. It is December the 12th, 2020. We want to say good afternoon to Europe, good afternoon Zambia, good evening the Western Pacific and all the people in those parts of the world. Good morning America, good morning Canada, welcome to the show, and we do thank you for joining us. I am your host, Nathan Inkama, from the great city and state of Dallas, Texas. The news, the news, everything in the news now is about the vaccine that has come out, and we are greatly honored today to speak to um, a specialist, if I may say, use that word in that area and uh, field of study. Before I welcome our guest, let me say good morning to my friend, uh, Roger. Good morning. You managed to wake up today or you didn't fall asleep? No, today I didn't go to work. You know, when I don't go to work, I'm, my weekend off, uh, I'm fresh. Ah, excellent, excellent. Yeah, it's when coming from work in the morning and you decide to take a small nap, that's where mistakes happen. All right, all right. Pastor Brian, yeah. good morning. Good morning, good morning. Uh, Are you ready for this? A lot of people are asking yes. me questions whether I believe or we are propagating the use of a vaccine or something like that, contrary to that. Thank you, everybody, for joining us, listening online, and those that are tuned in from Zambia, Central Africa, and all the parts of the world. Our guest today, Roger, was with us four months ago when I looked at the system uh, of our radio, the previous podcast. Dr. Christopher Da Costa works as a vaccine development project leader with the Coalition of Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, that is CEPI that is helping to enable global access to vaccines for COVID-19 and several other diseases with pandemic potential. He has 30 years experience in clinical practice on three continents, and he also has 15 years experience in the pharmaceutical and biotechnological industries, primarily in vaccine development. Let me make a a disclaimer here. Dr. Da Costa is here in his personal capacity Whatever discussion or views he's going to share are based on his personal uh, position, his credentials and experience through the years. He is not speaking on behalf of CEPI. Dr. DaCosta, welcome back to Zambia Block Talk Radio. Good morning. 
Good morning, Nathan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We are so delighted that you are here. And you know something interesting? When I was looking at that show where you were featured four months ago, the title of the show is How Soon Will a Vaccine Be Ready? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> here Absolutely. we are today now. We have the vaccine. Okay, before we talk about vaccines, let, let just help us understand uh, one component of the COVID-19, uh, the way things are happening and, and what is going on with this. Uh, why the, the statistics, studies, and all everything surrounding this thing uh, shows that the infections and fertility is higher among people of color now that's an exp- for those listening outside the US that's a an expression used for Africans African Americans or black people and uh Asians uh Latinos and in this case Dr. Dacosta we're talking it is even worse amongst the native americans why are the fatalities and the infections high amongst people of color uh, well, I think um, when you look at across the board at people of color uh, in the United States, that term is used for every ethnic group other than Caucasian. Yes. Um, that in of itself, you know, would make you think, do Caucasians have a special uh, degree of protection perhaps that other ethnic groups don't have? Or are mm-hmm. uh, all the other ethnic groups to some extent disadvantaged in one way or that that unites them, you know. And I would I would uh, put out my thumb and say that the latter is the case. So essentially, what we're seeing is not some sort of a genetic protection of Caucasians, okay. but more of a societal and uh, environmental uh, risk uh, for uh, the other ethnic groups. Now, when I say that, I also include anything that leads to health disparities that mm-hmm. will put them at higher risk of acquiring the infection uh, and or uh, getting sicker and dying from the infection. So we know that from a socioeconomic standpoint in general, in general terms, African Americans and other ethnic minorities in the United States have uh, less access to health care. They have uh, less access to good advice on nutrition, diet, mm. and so on. Um, you know, many of us are the exception rather than the rule, but if you look across the board, um, there is also a systemic um, discrimination, which is a real thing um, that is not always overt. Sometimes it's very subliminal. Um, poverty, um, lack of opportunity, all of these things conspire to make people of color more susceptible to developing conditions, underlying conditions that predisposed to getting uh, the infection, but also the healthcare system doesn't necessarily uh, lend itself to them getting the best care, um, and therefore they're more susceptible to getting more severe infection and dying. But their healthcare system also sometimes um, has scared people off in many ways, traditionally, people of color, Mm. particularly Mm. African-Americans. Have, don't have that level of confidence in the healthcare system such that they make sure that they have regular checkups, you know, have confidence in their providers, 
and have the preventive health care. Uh, and all that, again, leads to a greater predisposition for getting more severe disease. Remember that COVID-19 is a disease that is worse in people who have certain predisposing conditions. So chronic lung yes. disease, people with diabetes, people with hypertension. Um, these are many of the conditions that people of color suffer from, not because of an inherent genetic predisposition necessarily, but because the societal, environmental, and other factors, um, they actually mitigate against people getting the right type of care, being confident in going to get the right type of care, uh, and, um, you know, just the historical legacy of slavery and, um, you know, um, disadvantage in this country for people of color. So that's really what the situation is. Um, mm. If it were a genetic position, you probably would see a much higher rate of deaths mm-hmm. and higher rate um, in some of the countries with people of color that are more affluent. Um, you know, okay. but that isn't necessarily the case. You actually see less, um, you know, uh, mortality in, in Africa in general, for instance. Okay. Before I move away from that question, the next, now we're going to venture into vaccines. Now, everybody else, anybody yeah. here who wants to address uh, that issue further before we move away? Um, Roger, Dr. Pastor Brian, Dr. Kazila, good morning. Welcome. Um, good morning. Good morning. Let's on the issue. We're now going to venture into vaccines. If, if anybody wants to say anything more on that, nobody. Okay. Uh, Last night. Want to say anything on what? Nothing again. On just on this subject of the fatalities amongst people of color in general, just on that. Topic. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm sure he has explained it quite well. Yeah. yeah. He has done a good job I, on I, that. I yeah. think. Can I come in uh, briefly? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Doctor Kazir. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Chris, uh, it's a pleasure hearing you. I always enjoy uh, how you explain things and uh, your expertise is uh, definitely appreciated. And I agree uh, uh, to a very large extent everything you've said. The only thing that's kind of perplexing to the medical world and I think to everyone is Africa, the people of color in Africa um, Mm -hmm. and the cases. Uh, the differences we are seeing in general. I'm not saying, uh, you know, there's, um, there are no fatalities in places like Sub-Saharan Africa. If you look at uh, all the things that we've talked about here, um, mm-hmm. there are comorbidities there. There are the healthcare system there is probably not as great as the United States in general. Um, there's no uh, primary health care to really talk about, uh, nutritional issues, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yet uh, the numbers are not, uh, in fact, the statistics short, for example, just uh, bringing it closer to home, Zambia is considered one of the safest places in, um, in, uh, in the world, uh, the fourth or something like that. I can't uh, recall who... Uh, which source that was. But can you comment just before we go to vaccine, why oh. do, are we seeing in Africa the cases are seemingly less? I know the young population Absolutely. may be playing a role, and uh, Chris also talked about other issues like vaccinations, et cetera. Just, just touch on that before we proceed to oh, the actual Absolutely. Vaccine. I think this is a, a very important question. So we're dealing with two sort of um, issues here when we talk about 
people of color and so on. You know, we're talking in the context, first of all, of the U.S. Western world and how you compare mm-hmm. people of different ethnic, uh, you know, groups. Um, but when you translate to countries, and I kind of touched on that very briefly, when you come translate to countries uh, that are uh, in the, what we call, lower and middle-income country categories, what used to be called the developing world or underdeveloped countries, if we go back to some of the terminology from, from before, um, it's a different landscape because, yes, the playing field in terms of the healthcare systems and access to healthcare and so on is, is, is not <coughs> at the level or the threshold that you find in the higher income countries. Uh, mm. However, it's fairly level playing field in terms of the things that Dr. Kazila has very eloquently mentioned, you know, lack of uh, true access, lack of uh, true primary care infrastructure across the board. Of course, there are many, many exceptions to the rule. Um, but the issue then becomes, are there other factors, um, mm-hmm. genetic or environmental, that come into play? Um, and let me first talk about one environmental factor that was touted at the very beginning of the COVID uh, pandemic was weather. You know, there was this talk about, you know, in the warmer countries, we're seeing less cases. It's all about the weather. Um, and, you know, because we have warmer climate, you know, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, we have less cases. When you go further south, all the way south to South Africa, it's cooler climate overall, not always throughout the year, but um, that's why they have so many more in South Africa. They go to North Africa, you know, um, Algeria and those countries, they had higher rates. But that really didn't turn out because at the same time, we saw that Iran, which is a country that has these unbearable temperatures much of the year, had one of the highest rates. Um, so that called into question the whole question of, of weather, so climate, you know. So climate doesn't have a whole deal to do with it, although we do see some degree of seasonality in the Western world where we're seeing these waves coming up, you know, the winter pandemic waves. Uh, so for the Western world, you know, um, Northern uh, American countries, uh, Northern Europe um, and Central Europe, you know, you, you may see that phenomenon to a certain extent where there's seasonality. But weather has really been put at the back burner as a factor. Now, there are other, uh, let's go to nutrition. So the whole concept of vitamin D, I'm sure you people, a lot of people have heard about vitamin D and the fact that, um, you know, there are studies to suggest that um, adequate levels of vitamin D tend to portend to less of a propensity to acquire the infection and less severe infection. Now, vitamin D, we know that the paradox in North America, uh, and I'm not sure this is exactly the same in Canada, but I suspect it might be, is that people of color tend to actually have lower vitamin D levels uh, than people, yeah. you know, who are yeah. lighter skin Caucasian. And, um, you know, without having to go into the complexity of the science behind that, um, that is thought to be one potential confounder with all what I talked about, about societal and, and so on, factors leading to disparities. This one confounding factor could be, to a certain extent, vitamin D levels. More work needs to be done, tend to be lower in African-Americans than they are in Africans in Africa, where there's a lot of exposure to sun, a lot more storage of vitamin D, uh, less uh, vitamin D deficiency. So it, it's one small factor that could have some effect. It could therefore explain why when you look at places like South Africa, you know, you get probably a higher rate to a certain extent where you have perhaps uh, not as much uh, vitamin D storage. You have 
periods of winter that are really cold and so on and so forth. But I'm still not buying that as, as, as a sufficient explanation. It's something I wanted to throw out there as a possible factor to confound us. There are other factors related to, um, number one is mass vaccinations. So, you know, there are examples that have been given of countries where there have been mass vaccinations with BCG vaccine and also MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. And there are pretty convincing studies that seem to show that in countries where BCG vaccination, certain countries where BCG vaccination has been widespread, that the um, you know, incidents of uh, COVID-19 and disease severity have been impacted positively. That even more so with MMR. Now, in terms of BCG, the explanation is thought to be what's known as a, a um, taught or learnt immunity, that BCG induces a very nonspecific immune response that's not just focused towards TB or bacteria from mm. that class, which originally it's supposed to be, but trains the immune system broadly such the immune system it becomes very much vigilant to look for non-microbacterial, non-TB-related um, uh, uh, pathogens such as viruses. And that, that may have an impact. And when you look at the epidemiology, it seems to suggest that that may well be the case. More interesting to me is MMR because, and in fact, the Gates Foundation has, has put some substantial amount of money to look at this. Uh, the studies have shown that in certain countries where there's a high MMR coverage, the rate of COVID-19 infection has been very low. Um, and it was not just, you know, one or two sporadic countries. Uh, Madagascar is a country that comes into mind very, very high on the list um, in terms of this phenomenon where mm-hmm. they had a mass vaccination campaign in 2019. Uh, 7.2 million of the population, so it's a sizable part of the population were immunized. And they just... Immunized with what, Dr. Dacosta? What were they uh, immunized uh, they, they, with? They were with the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, MMR. Uh, the childhood vaccine. Okay. Yeah. And, okay. and that, led, that was thought to be associated with a very low um, incidence of um, COVID-19. So there's actually more research funded by Gates that is going to look at this. Hong Kong, which is very close geographically to Wuhan, where the whole COVID-19 started, um, you know, uh, basically um, at the time it was roaring in Wuhan and the surrounding areas, um, Hong Kong was virtually free of COVID you know, for quite a while. Um, okay. They've really not had a very high number of cases. And it seems as though mm. that that's another uh, area where, you know, those mass vaccinations, MMR, and that might have had an okay. impact. I'll leave mm. it at that okay. because we'll have a lot more questions. Yeah, Let, let's get into vaccines. Uh, thank you for that information. Thanks, Dr. Kazila. Last night, I'm listening to the news. I, I don't know how many of you here were. Uh, at 18.33, I even wrote it down. At 1833, Dr. Costa, an announcement is made that the FDA has authorized the emergency. The word I'm underlining there is emergency uh, use of the COVID-19 vaccine. Or can you explain to us the, why are they using the word emergency and why, what, right. what, what was going on there with the FDA approval stuff? What goes on? So basically, when a vaccine is developed by a developer, they mm-hmm. go to the regulators in a particular country, and, and there are certain regulators that are the most prominent in the world. So the FDA, Food and Drug Administration in the U.S., 
the EMA, which is the European Medicines Agency for most European countries, and then, and then the WHO, what they call the WHO pre-qualification that really is, holds the hands of most of the low- and middle-income countries and works in relationship with their ministries of health. And then, and then many other countries have their own regulatory authorities. But those, those are the mm. three main bodies that really determine how a vaccine uh, moves forward in terms of its uh, public licensure and use uh, and distribution for public use. Now, normally it goes through a process where a vaccine is developed through all the different clinical and preclinical and clinical phases of development. Um, and I w there's not enough time to go into explain all those, but essentially it goes through a series of um, tests in animals um, and mm. in the lab, and then it goes into human small numbers initially, uh, and then subsequently increasing numbers through the different phases until, until you've immunized a few tens of thousands of people, uh, and you've, you've generated data to show that the vaccine works, you know, it, it, it's preventing that particular disease uh, from either the infection from occurring or the disease from occurring or both. Uh, and then they go to the regulators and say, here's our data, you know, we've got all the data from all our studies, we're now ready to present it to you. Do you agree that it's uh, safe? And uh, mm. uh, it's efficacious is the word we use, vaccine. Um, and then the FDA goes to a committee. The committee then uh, looks at all the data and they make a vote, the members of the committee. Okay. And by majority vote, it's a majority vote mm. that would carry the vaccine through to formal endorsement and approval, which is a process where they then say formally, okay, yes, you can go ahead. There may be some caveats that they say, okay, you can go ahead, but we have certain safety concerns. So when you start distributing the vaccine, you have to collect data over several years, uh, send it back to us so that every year we're looking at the data to see if there are any safety events that would lead us to be concerned. Uh, and in the worst case scenario, just pull the vaccine out of the market. You know, they can do that. Mm -hmm. Or they can, mm -hmm. you know, put certain labels and warnings on the vaccine to warn people before they have the vaccine, uh, they receive the vaccine. So that's the normal process, and it normally takes quite some time. And even between the committee sitting and the formal approval can take several weeks and sometimes months. But what's happened in this case, what was agreed at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, mm -hmm. various ways to accelerate the development of vaccines and make them rapidly available because of the nature of this pandemic, uh, a lot of mortality happening very quickly, a lot of vulnerable groups. And so there was no way you were going to wait for um, what used to be 10 to 15 years to develop a vaccine. And most recently, oh, wow. in fact, the, the record was broken with Ebola a few years ago where a vaccine was developed in five years. That was the fastest before COVID. Uh, put aside influenza because influenza is a different kettle of fish. That's a sort of an outlier. So everything apart from flu, where flu vaccines can be developed rapidly every year. The traditional mm. vaccine pathway took much longer. So the, the idea was, how can we get a vaccine out very quickly um, based on preliminary data without going through all the steps I mentioned? So essentially what emergency use authorization is, is that you do what's known as a phase one study, and then you get certain data that informs you of the vaccine dose and if it's safe and effective at a, at, a, at a certain dose, potentially effective. You then go into a phase two study with a limited number of subjects that may be just a few thousand. And if that mm -hmm. shows you that you have, preferably you should have at least 10,000 because then the statistics are, are much more reliable or above. But if you then have an indication that you're getting a vaccine efficacy of a certain percentage, 
Now, the FDA and other agencies have agreed that 60 to 70% is what they would expect to be agreeable in terms of the efficacy side. On the other side, you also have preliminary safety that suggests that it's tolerable, it's safe with some minor side effects, with no major side effects to be concerned about. Um, then they could issue an emergency use authorization so that the process would go quicker. But then the clinical trials would continue after that EUA, as they call it, to do the full phase three studies with the tens of thousands I mentioned before, such that they could come back and say, based on the full data set and based on the use, based on emergency use, we can pull the data and see if this vaccine really is safe. You know, so as it stands, Pfizer has met the EUA. Um, it's been approved, record time between the committee meeting and the approval, and I think there was political pressure brought to bear, but that's beyond the scope of this discussion. Uh, and then once that is done, they're going to continue to look at, you know, data coming in. And the worst-case scenario is that you start to see bad adverse events and the vaccine is pulled or certain warnings are put on the label. But the best-case scenario is that it continues to show, you know, safety. It continues to show efficacy. Quick mention is that Pfizer came up with a preliminary efficacy around the 95% mark, um, which was unprecedented. It was unexpected. Um, you know, we were looking at, as I said, 60 to 70% was going to be reasonable. But that caused some issues because it means that they're being first past the post. All the other vaccines that are going to come subsequently are going to be judged against that, that mark. Um, not because the 60 or 70% uh, efficacy is necessarily poor for a vaccine, but because the public consumption of vaccine. In the context of what I'm sure you will talk about later on, hesitancy, um, people are going to look at numbers and say 95%, 60 or 70%, which vaccines should I take? That's a no-brainer. So that's leading into another discussion. But essentially, emergency use authorization by the FDA allows for use in an, uh, in an emergency pandemic situation. The WHO also has a process known as EUL, emergency use licensure, which is similar. Um, and other agencies have their emergency or accelerated pathways for approval, as they call them. I'll stop at that. We can talk for the rest of the day about this, but I'll, I'll talk about that for now. <laughs> Nathan, over to you. <coughs> Nathan. Nathan, are you on mute? <laughs> Is he I don't know where he's going. Nathan, we can't uh, hear you. Roger usually okay. takes over if Nathan. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. The, the, the explaining uh, is is uh, well done. I don't know, Doctor Kajira, uh, if you wanted to uh, add on uh, one or two points there as we wait for this moment. No, no. I think Chris Chris has eloquently uh, taught us or educated us on the processing, uh, the processes that are involved. So that no no comment there. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, a follow-up, this discussion is going to go on even in, in my show. Why do you think, uh, uh, Dr. Costa, um, okay, let me rephrase my question. Dr. Costa. Dr. Costa, yeah. Um, when you look at the different uh, communities, community of color, the white, where do you think you find a lot of people who are skeptical about the vaccine? Um, 
Absolutely. So um, if you asked me this question six months ago, I would say that yeah. the black African-American community predominantly um, was the h- highest in terms of vaccine hesitancy, as we call it nowadays, or skepticism about the vaccine. And, and that has a historical basis in American history. As you know, um, you know, the people of color of African-American extraction uh, following, you know, slavery and emancipation during those periods, there were cases of quote-unquote experimentation uh, in clinical trials, the most notable being syphilis, okay, uh, and yes. the Tuskegee Institute study, some of you, many of you will know about, where people were subjected to experimental vaccines and therapies and so on and not told about the potential dangers and ended up, um, you know, suffering very bad health consequences. And when all this came to light, um, you know, African-Americans across the board felt that they were being used as guinea pigs, um, Mm. which to a large extent they were. Um, And so that has sort of trickled down to the modern day where there there continues to be skepticism about the healthcare system at large really having our back. Um, And it's not just because of the history, but also because of the current experiences of uh, people of color in the healthcare system in the United States, where, you know, a lot of studies uh, have shown that systemic uh, subliminal, usually, um, racial disparities exist in delivery of healthcare. Um, and and these things have all conspired to, in this day and age of COVID-19, uh, bring to the fore this vaccine hesitancy. But now I said, if you asked me that six months ago, now you ask me now. You look at Americans <laughs> yeah. regardless across the board. There is yeah. uh, thought to be a roughly 50%, and these figures vary, uh, vaccine hesitancy rate right now in terms of the number of people who say, say they will take a vaccine. There are various surveys, and it depends on how these surveys are, do- are done. But you look at the Caucasian community, for instance. Many people are skeptical amongst the Caucasian community about vaccines. They tend to be people who are blue-collar, tend to be uh, in um, sort of more rural um, America, but even if you look at more educated Americans, there are a lot of people that are skeptical. And a lot of it is because of a couple of things. First of all, the speed with which the vaccines are being developed, um, the unprecedented speed, I should say, obviously engenders some level of concern. Um, but also, you know, conspiracy theories, um, which have been politically motivated most, like, most recently in the last, <laughs> you know, six to 12 months. Those have had a significant impact on people who are educated, college-educated professionals even, beginning to have doubts about whether to take a vaccine. Now, the last thing I'm going to say is that um, people like myself and, and several of you who, have, who are closer to the actual processes of vaccine development and so on, we also have a certain level of skepticism, uh, health <clears throat> skepticism. Personally, and, and again, thank you for the disclaimer, I'm not talking about the organization I work for. Personally, you know, I have a certain level of knowledge of how these vaccines are developed that's over and above the average. And I would look at mRNA vaccines and say that they've never been approved in humans for use before. Mm. Um, So, you know, what are the unprecedented or unforeseen adverse effects that may emerge, not in the short term, not necessarily in the medium term, but in the long term? there's nothing you can do to predict what's going to happen in the long term. But certainly you can look and see what's happening in the immediate short term. And that's where I'm keeping a very close eye. Otherwise we'll run out of time for other questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Nathan is back here. Yeah. 
I don't know what happened. My connection, I didn't do anything to it. Uh, you've said something here about mRNA not uh, being whatever terminology there. And yes. that's, we, we seem to be hearing more about the Pfizer uh, vaccination yeah. than um, my, my question to get to the point is, how many COVID vaccinations are being developed out there? And to that question, okay. I would say this vaccination, this vaccine, Dr. Dacosta, um, mm-hmm. why below 90 degrees storage temperature? Those are some of the things that are creating concerns. Yes. Uh, and let me, speak to, let me speak to both of those points. First of all, I can give you a fairly accurate number. I would say a very accurate number of the number of vaccines out in development because I, that's one of the things our organization tracks. Uh-huh. And as of last week, as of last week, Friday, there were 321 vaccines for COVID-19 being in, develop, in development across the world. Would you believe? Okay. Oh, wow. um, and this is not to mention those that have not declared themselves that may be a little, you know, garage shop or, oh, I should say a small academic group somewhere that's developing something that they hope to develop into a vaccine. But those that have declared themselves as developing a vaccine, there's 321 across the board. These are mostly in countries in Europe, in China, a high number mm-hmm. in China. Uh, uh, and in uh, Europe, higher income countries. Uh, and it varies between academic groups uh, and also um, biotechnology companies and then larger pharma companies in these various um, countries. Now, of those, there are only about 10, roughly 10 of them that are in the clinic. When I say in the clinic, it means they've been put into humans and have started to okay. trials. So the vast majority of these are still working in animals, looking at animal studies, or in the lab, you know, looking at cells, the culture in the lab, and how, you know, the vaccine candidate behaves in that way so that they can get preliminary data to be allowed to go into humans. Remember that to be allowed to go into humans, you've got to go to a regulator, whether it's a local Mm -hmm. country regulator uh, or one of the more broadly, um, you know, stringent, as they call, regulatory authorities to give you the green light to say, okay, you have all the data to be able to go into what's called a first-in-human study or FIH study, which is just a handful of humans you're going to go into, maybe 10 to 20 of them, to see if your vaccine is safe. First of all, if there are any safety issues that come up in those first that are substantial, it kills the vaccine there and then. So overall, we can estimate that of the 321 or so now, and that figure has escalated wow. exponentially over the last few months. I remember one time it was 200, maybe six months ago, now it's 321. Mm. Only, only 10%, if you go by past history, only 10% of them can be expected to make it to the clinic eventually. Okay. okay. And, and um, of those 10%, technically only at most... Um, 50% of those perhaps might make it to the market. That's kind of the broad expectation. Now, there are some unprecedented things happening in this modern era that has made vaccine development more uh, effective and faster. So those numbers may change. But I think what's going to be most telling about all these efforts is that two things. Number one, you already have the Pfizer vaccine on the market um, mm-hmm. with Moderna following very close and then possibly Oxford-AstraZeneca 
Uh, you have Gamaleya, you know, from Russia and the Sputnik vaccine. Um, and you have a few candidates that are going to be coming soon out of China and places like that. Uh, and, and once the market begins to be saturated, a lot of these other companies will have to move away from vaccine development for COVID because they simply won't have a market. Assuming that those on the market are successful, then those meet safety issues and other concerns. Now, I'm going to go to your second question because it has a little bit to do with the first question. The business of what's known as uh, thermal stability uh, for storage of these vaccines. Now, the the temperature actually range. So, Paul, just give some background. Usually when vaccines are developed, um, the easiest, most uh, least pathway of resistance is to develop a vaccine that requires storage at very, very cold temperatures, minus 70 to minus 80. That's what Pfizer's vaccine is. Uh, but all companies developing vaccines that are going to be used in countries that are warmer, like LMICs, like our countries, they have mm-hmm. to develop thermal stability so these vaccines can be at least put in a freezer, that, in a fridge freezer, which is minus 20, or in the fridge itself, which is 2 to, two to 8 degrees, average of 4 degrees. So also for transportation and distribution logistics, logistically across a large continent like Africa, you have to do testing of what's known as temperature excursion. So when the temperature goes up to 25 or room temperature, or even sometimes up to 40 degrees, remember 40 degrees, um, and I'm talking here all Celsius, all is Celsius. Uh, countries in, in, in Saudi, Saudi and countries around the Middle East can go up to 40 sometimes Celsius. So there has to be stability testing that looks at, at these three groups of temperatures, minus 70, the minus 20, and then the 2 to 8, but also the excursions up to room temperature and beyond. And what companies normally do is that they will be working on all of these while they're developing the vaccine. But what Pfizer has done to get to the front of the line um, is to jump in with their minus 70, which is the easiest to develop in terms of thermal stability, and distribute the vaccine. Now, is that a good thing for lower middle income countries? No, because no. most of our countries, where are you going to store minus 70? You have a few research yeah. institutes here and there which have minus 70 for research purposes, but which hospitals, which clinics, which rural health centers are going to have minus 70? How are you going to be able to transport minus 70 across the country without its degradation? It's not going to happen. So Moderna has taken a step forward. Moderna has minus 20, but they also have 2 to 8. And as of two weeks ago, when I last looked at this, they they had 2 to 8 for about a week. But there are other vaccines I'm working on, and I cannot name the the institution because I'm actually leading that project within CEPI, that have six months of 2 to 8 stability that are also mRNA vaccines. So, you know, the... The field is changing, and the suspicion is that Pfizer is most certainly has worked on their 2 to 8, as well as their minus 20. They're not quite there with the data yet, and they will come up with that data and be more competitive in the broader market. But this is one of the considerations that is a major consideration for the vaccines that are going to be used in LMICs, is that they've got to have that thermal stability for storage in the fridge for a substantial amount of time. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I'll say is that one alternative is to develop what's known as a lyophilized preparation or a dried powder instead of a liquid. Everything I've said before uh, relates to liquids. When you develop a dry powder, it's 
easy to store in the fridge, and then you simply just reconstitute it by adding um, some liquid to it at the time you're ready to vaccinate. It's harder technically to make lyo, uh, lyophilized products. That's why they don't come out immediately. But all these companies, the bigger companies are working also on lyo so that they're able to use this um, in lower middle income countries. I'll leave it at that for now um, for any questions. Okay, before we move to Africa, um, we need to talk about the issues specifically relating to Africa. So this, this vaccine, let's, we are in the U.S., and minus, I don't know, minus 90 degrees. Minus uh, 70. How is, it's minus 70? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, minus 70. So, potential component. How, mm-hmm. how is it going to work out? And uh, when, right. do they, when do they estimate the public will have access to these vaccinations? Okay, I'll answer the second question first. The second question is, it's going to be less than 24 hours from now that they're, they're beginning to vaccinate people in the United States. Okay? Um, okay. <laughs> the distrib- second question, which was your first question, is the distribution of vaccines within the U.S. is going to be easy peasy, if I can put it that way, because they're going to use dry ice, which, um, you know, takes you down to that level of, of temperature. But also there are specific transportation vehicles that have been fitted mm. with freeze conditions to that level that are going to use to transport the vaccine across the country. Um, you know, it's very expensive technology. It's not the type that countries can afford, lower middle income countries can afford, especially if you look at the size of some of our countries and how vast they are and, how, and, and also the road infrastructure, um, mm-hmm. you know, the lack of air transport infrastructure that would have those facilities to, to transport that kind of a, at that temperature. You just look at all the factors it's extremely difficult outside of northern American and um, northern European countries um, to use that technology. Um, but in, in the States, it's not going to be a problem at all. But the problem would be in the United States, once it gets to the destination, that mm-hmm. destination, does it have a minus 70? And even in the U.S., you know, minus 70 facilities aren't everywhere willy-nilly. All your local urgent care clinics and so on and so on, very few of them have minus 70. So it's about distributing and administering the vaccine more almost on an as-needed basis, estimating what your need is, sending the right amount of vaccine, using it up very quickly within the few um, weeks of shelf life, um, you know, at minus 70 um, or months. It may be thought for several months, but, but really not having to um, store or, or stockpile too much because the, not everywhere has the minus 70 freezer or fridge available, even in the it's United true. States. So, mm. yes, it is a challenge, but um, the plan is to, to work very efficiently to make sure you're sending out what there is capacity to store and sending out what is going to be used almost immediately uh, or certainly within a few days to weeks. Um, and, and that's how it's being managed in the U.S. so far. Okay. Let, let, uh, can I ask a quick question? Yeah. Sorry. Go, in, go ahead. Just, just on the rollout, on the rollout of the vaccine, in Canada, the prime minister called upon the army, the military, mm-hmm. to come in and help. Has the U.S. done the same, or is it all in private hands? Oh, you, you, you know, uh, David, as far as I know, it's all in private hands. I haven't heard anything about the U.S. military. 
Um, I'm sure they'll get involved in some way, shape, or form on a statewide basis, you know, because in, in, in America, the way things work is that, um, you know, as I often say, the disunited states of America, where you have 51 different countries in one um, and some territories, yeah, yeah. they all do things differently at the state level. So the federal government will say, okay, yeah. um, let's do this. But there are certain states may call in the National Guard, I suspect, just for logistical um, reasons to be able to get this out. Um, so I don't rule that out, David. Um, yeah, Canada is a right. less complicated country than the U.S. From that respect. Yeah. Dr. Gazira, before we go to Africa with Dr. Costa, in Canada, are you guys also distributing the same Pfizer uh, vaccine? Or there is another vaccine yes. that has been developed today? Yeah, the, the problem with Canada is we did not invest in uh, production and uh, even research of this uh, vaccine uh, vaccine development in general. So the Liberal mm-hmm. government is under fire for letting countries like UK and uh, the US and others do it. But while we are standing in the queue asking the companies to, to give us some 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 uh, um, some some, uh, right. some vaccines. But what I know is they've ordered Literally all the ones that have come out with the data from the Pfizer, Moderna, and and millions of doses have been ordered for the Canadian population. So we'll have the hotspot of everything, and uh, that will okay. be. I'm curious to see how whether the, the individual has a choice to say, "Me, I want the Moderna one, not that one." Uh, we're yet to see how they'll do it. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Oh, okay. There's a very quickly. There's a very promising company in Canada. Um, you know, we, okay. we one of the things we do at CEPI is that we, we we evaluate a lot of candidates applying, you know, for support. And mm-hmm. um, I yeah. can say this because it's in the public domain. Is that there's a company called Medicago, um, which is a Canadian company, and I think they're based in the Toronto area somewhere. Um, but oh no, they're actually probably based in Montreal, um, Quebec. Montreal, probably. So, yeah. So, yeah, sure. yeah. Medicago is a company developing a plant-based. They have a different way of developing vaccines that's unique, uh, based on plant-based, um, you know, systems. And I can't mm. give you the details now for various for obvious reasons. But that is a company to keep an eye on. That would be unique if it were to be successful, and it's a wholly oh. Canadian company. So that's something to keep an eye on. That'll okay. Be nice. Good. Good. Let, let's go to Africa. Um, I don't know where I even to start from. Uh, what is the scenario? What's the picture in Africa? There was. Could you speak to something that came out of some information news about Madagascar doing something? Could you address that? What is going uh, on in Africa yeah. as far as vaccine, vaccine sourcing, distribution is concerned? Yeah, so, um, you know, um, Madagascar is a kind of a unique country. (laughs) Um, We talked about (laughs) Madagascar briefly because, you know, they have this mass MMR vaccination, and Mm -hmm. as a result, they've had very, very few, you know, COVID infections. Um, Oh, it's one of those parts of the world where they have very low rate of, of, of COVID. But they did, when they have a few cases, they came up with this concoction, which was supposed to have been homemade, that was, uh, preventing or treating COVID-19. And um, they actually got to the point where there was a lot of buy-in from certain countries in Africa um, 
And the WHO gave them a platform because WHO didn't want to discount the fact that they may have something that works. WHO was being, being very fair. And so they, they managed to convince a number of countries that we have this concoction that works and managed to, I, I think there are about six countries, um, and I don't know which those are, to which they exported the concoction. Uh, the problem is that, you know, things like that are not accepted in the wider world if you don't do controlled clinical trials of some sort. You know, that's the kind of norm and the standard. And so even if you have a product that has got anecdotal efficacy, you know, you're not going to get buy-in on a very wide scale. And I think that's what is, is, is the issue. I can't speak to the integrity from the scientific standpoint of what they have. The other thing about Madagascar is that they had at one point said that they're not going to, um, you know, they're not going to agree to um, being, participate in the COVAX facility. COVAX is what WHO, um, mm. Gavi, and my organization, CEPI, um, got together to develop this facility where we're buying a lot of vaccine doses to try to ensure that LMICs get access to vaccines. So we, what we do is, we at CEPI, for example, we're on the research and development side. We um, give money to companies, whether they're big pharma, okay. small biotech, academic groups, to develop vaccines. But ahead of time, we take a risk of buying a lot of doses. One of the criteria for them actually being able to subscribe to our facilities to be able to produce at least 100 billion doses by the end of 2021. Uh, and, you know, if we pre-order these vaccines and they are successful, we are at the front of the queue to get the vaccine. When we say we, it means countries like Gambia, Ghana, Zambia, all the countries that fall under this COVAX facility and that have signed up for the COVAX facility. Now, Madagascar is one of the few LMICs that did not sign up to COVAX because they said, we don't need the vaccine. We've got this concoction, you know, mm -hmm. but it's not a vaccine and they don't have a homegrown vaccine. It's more of a therapeutic approach that may um, also have some preventive um, attributes to it, but it's not a true vaccine. Okay, okay. Um, okay, some, I think somebody wants to make a comment or a question here. Uh, Rajsebe, did you have a question or comment? Hello, Rajsebe. Uh, Chris, Chris. Yes. Uh, uh, let, let, let me uh, just a quick follow-up that time. Um, Dr. D'Agosta, this one is mixed with, the, with politics. Uh, in your view as a, sci as a scientist, do you think uh, these developments are just coincidental that they are coming out after Donald Trump lost, or the, some of them could have been ready, but they wanted him gone? Uh, this is just going on there. But I don't know. Yeah, you know, that's... That that's a very interesting question. <laughs> I, one, of the things, one of the things I think the scientific community in the United States and beyond are very mm -hmm. upset about is that in the United States, the whole vaccine development, vaccine rollout process has been highly politicized. Now, there yeah. was a bit of a miscalculation on the part of the um, Trump administration, I dare say, because they are expected to win this election. They were going to, you know, go to the races, win the election, the vaccine gets rolled out, and hurrah, you know, the, the American public are so enamored of them that they're going to win the next 100 elections, you know, um, <laughs> if I just to put it crudely. And there certainly was a very big political bent to getting the vaccines out fast. Now, the fact that the vaccines did come out in less than a year from the time that they, they started all this development is less uh, due to a 
the political than to the scientific rigor, to scientists mm-hmm. coming together across the world, um, sharing information. Classic example is once the sequence of the virus, the genetic makeup of the virus was known in China back in January, February, um, mm. they actually shared data with all countries. You know, people talk about the Chinese being very, you know, uh, you know, keeping things close to the chest, but they were very transparent. That was the first thing. Then many of the larger pharma companies that are often very closed about their intellectual property and their trade secrets, they partnered with academic groups to make these academic groups that where all the brains are bring out, or the smaller companies bring out these vaccines. Like you're talking, we talk about a Pfizer vaccine, but it's really BioNTech, the second small biotech company that really developed the, the vaccine and then partnered with the larger company, Pfizer, that has no hand in actually developing the fundamentals of the science of the vaccine, but they have the name. The same with Oxford and AstraZeneca, you know, these partnerships. Mm -hmm. Um, So the unprecedented um, scientific uh, partnerships and partnerships in financing, funding vaccine research is what brought the vaccine to the table um, today and not the political machinations. Now, the last thing I'll say is there was the Operation Warp Speed that was brought in as a political instrument to put a stamp on the vaccine development effort. And that obviously brought funding, government funding into it. But you can argue that regardless of who the government was, there was going to be a huge amount of government funding anyway for these, these processes. So to me, I always see it as the scientists, the physicians, the various people, epidemiologists, etc., the funders, the pu- public-private partners, the Gates Foundation, all these different groups, they need to get the credit for bringing a vaccine so quickly to the table and not the politicians. Okay. Mm, excellent. Okay, we have uh, six minutes here before we go to Dr. Vizira. So where is Africa in all this picture? Where are they going to source the vaccines? I don't know whether we should yeah. say Africa or we can pick one or two countries. As yeah. a, whatever information so, you can share with us, how the African countries yeah, are approaching this. I would say one word. One word is COVAX. I mentioned COVAX before. Mm-hmm. COVAX was, is the facility that was created to make sure that low- and middle-income countries most of which are in Africa and South America and, and Southeast Asia, actually have equitable access to the vaccine. Now, what you're seeing right now is that equitable access has not been achieved yet because a lot of the high-income countries are buying up vaccine doses ahead of time from these um, large pharma companies. Wow. Um, we are fighting with these pharma companies to ensure that they are reserving some doses for us. Some are refusing to partner with Sepi and Gavi because they want to get bang for their buck um, because for the low-middle-income countries, they're going to have to lower, but it's going to be what's known as tiered pricing. They're going to have to have lower prices. So, for example, if they're selling a vaccine for $30 a dose in the U.S., you know, we would mm-hmm. be demanding $3 a dose, 3 to $5 a dose maybe for the, you know, or even $1 a dose. And they have to commit in, 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 in order to fulfill their social responsibility uh, which everyone has eyes on them for, they would have to commit to cutting their potential profits dramatically to be able to source these countries. As a result, what you're seeing is a lot of these countries are making deals, uh, paying billions of dollars to the Pfizer and the likes of these other companies. And um, these companies are therefore diverting most of their vaccine doses to you know, these bilateral partnerships as opposed to the COVAX mm. facility. So that's what we are fighting right now. Um, 
Uh, having said that, the last thing I'll say is that there's some vaccine developers that we're working with are committed to the LMICs and committed to producing doses that will be used in low- and middle-income countries. So we have a lot of hope in that regard. We're just waiting for vaccines that have more thermal stability and are going to be much more, you know, um, amenable to the climate and logistics in, in our lower middle income countries. Okay. Dr. Gajira, we have three minutes. Oh, very quickly. Uh, Chris, um, I'm sure you've seen on social media a vial written COVID-19 vaccine with the circle showing for Canada and U.S. only. And why mm-hmm. I'm asking is, are there any safeguards for African countries or our people in Africa to, to believe that the same vaccine that will be given to the North Americans and Europeans would be the ones given to them too. Uh, what is SEPI doing about uh, allaying any fear that there will be certain mm-hmm. vaccines targeted only for Africa and uh, not uh, for, for Europe, for example, so? Just any okay. Very good question, David. Very good question and a, very, a, a bit complicated to answer. So on the one hand, um, you know, those companies that are partnering with COVAX, which is Gavi, CEPI, and WHO, mm-hmm. um, you know, they have, you know, under the partnership agreements, they have clearly documented that the quality uh, of vaccines will be the same across the board. Whether they go to six, which is high-income countries, or LMICs, um, or, you know, anything in between. And so there is that commitment to that. Now, obviously, um, we can't be so naive as to say that, okay, they make a paper commitment, but are they really going to sort of cherry-pick the best vaccines and send them to Canada and keep them in the U.S.? Um, You know, a lot of that depends on a wing and a prayer. I, I personally doubt that the integrity of the scientists that work within these companies, you know, these are all good, mostly good people um, who have good intentions, I think, from the quality control standpoint, will make sure that this doesn't happen. The second thing is that the WHO and the European Medicines Agency and other agencies outside the U.S., for instance, they, they, have, they do their inspections. They do um, quality checks on vaccine doses. They, get, they buy up a few batches of doses, a few doses from every batch that's produced, and they test them in the lab, you know, to show that they are reaching a certain quality in terms of lab parameters, you know, that they can develop, mm. they can detect mm. in terms of the quality, okay. the purity, et cetera, of the vaccine. So these tests are done to make sure that they are pure. But again, okay. every country has to do its own tests where possible. Mm. And it's not always well, possible for us to do so. Well, everybody, that was our discussion today. We just wanted to get some basic information about vaccines and how they work, the distribution and everything. Dr. Dacosta, thank you so much. It's always a joy to have you here. You actually do open our eyes and everything. Uh, I have a joke about why things are delaying. I was telling somebody, I said, the angels in Africa are busy, are busy, are busy. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Indeed. The, the conversation continues in the next segment. Let's all go back. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Love is a wonderful, tender feeling. You give me
danger. The, the, the baby dance with 